Okay, the last time this happened, when Pastor Brent wasn't here, you were here too. So, hey, Pastor Brent is under the weather fighting the crud. And uh, let me tell you, you did not want him to be here tonight. The athlete in me wanted to tell him, hey, suck it up. Get in here. Get it done. Then he said the word pink eye to me. And I said, never mind. Stay away. So, but we need to be uh, just thoughtful and prayerful for him as he kind of fights the crud. He had his voice on Sunday here at church, and then by the end of the day Sunday, he had no voice, and he's been really fighting it the last couple of weeks. And so we have the privilege, though, tonight of hearing from a great Timberline friend and a great supporter of Pastor Brent and the community uh, night here at Timberline, and that is Matt Hickey. So come on up here, Matt. Let's welcome him to the stage and just say thank you for him for filling in. Last time he had 10 minutes to prep. This time he had 24 hours, so I don't know what we're going to do with, with all of that. So, Matt, thank you very much. We look forward to learning from you tonight as we continue to study the series. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm going to have to tease Brent about that a little bit, I think. So we're in the middle of a, a series that Pastor Brent has been leading so masterfully on, on encounters with Jesus. And I would be one to pray that beyond that initial encounter where we accept him as Lord and Savior, we do have daily encounters with Jesus. And we can study his word uh, and, and unpack some teachable moments from those encounters. So we're going to do an encounter this evening that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. We're going to root our discussion tonight from Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. But it's also found in Mark and it's found in Luke. And it touches upon a theme that John actually unpacks in some ways in more detail than the others. So it's something that probably merits some attention. Okay. Now, Matthew's memorable for any of a number of reasons. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 28, we get what's known as the Great Commission. Where Jesus calls us as truth bearers to take the eternal light of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And where we get this incredible promise, Jesus says, And lo, I will be with you always, is that me? Even unto the end of the age, I will be with you always. It's an incredible promise. And he's with us still. Facial hair can sometimes be annoying, it seems, huh? So we'll get a little audio help here tonight. And we can officially probably tell Brent, and when he's not here, it, the bottom just drops completely out, right? So we'll see if we can't catch on. You want me to ditch this? So how are we doing here? Hello. We're good. Okay. So we get the Great Commission from Matthew 28. In Matthew 22, Jesus responds to a question from a teacher of the law about what's the greatest commandment. And he says, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he proceeds to make a remark that for any first century Palestinian Jewish listener would have been a bit of a shock. Where he says, all of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So they are the set of lenses through which all of the law and prophets are to be seen. Well, I want to submit to you tonight that this question that's phrased by Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 16:15 is the greatest question. It's the question upon which our eternal destiny hinges. We have to get it right, 
And we have to understand who God is. So it's interesting that such a, an important question, a question of such gravity, Jesus tosses off in this wonderful conversational style. You can almost see him sitting around. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's a question that's posed to us on a daily basis and to all of those who are made in his image. Every man, woman, and child that's ever lived has had to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Now, I want to give you a little context. Context always matters. So I'm going to read a few extra verses from Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples first, who do people say the Son of Man is? What are the crowds saying about the Son of Man? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then here comes the greatest question. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. This is the moment in, in uh, Simon's history where he gets christened with a new name. You are Peter, or Kephas in the Aramaic, which means rock. You are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Peter gives us an example of how we ought to approach this. When we are asked, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. In the Greek, the Christ, or Christos, the Son of the living God. Now, it's important to understand. I don't think there's a moment in Scripture that, that uh, Jesus is not fully attentive of the time, the circumstances, the events. And in the story we see tonight, the location. So Caesarea Philippi, the ruins of which are now located in modern day um, Israel. It's essentially in the Golan Heights. It's an ancient dwelling that was situated at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon has slopes that roll into Syria, modern-day Syria. It's actually the tallest point in Syria. It's 9,200 feet above sea level. It has slopes that head down into Lebanon. And then slopes that head down in the location of Caesarea Philippi is in the Golan Heights. That's territory that was captured by Israel in the Six-Day War in 1967. The headwaters of the Jordan River flow from Mount Hermon. Prior to its rechristening as Caesarea Philippi, the city was known as Peneus, after the Greek god Pan, the god of nature. And prior to that, it housed a temple and an altar to the pagan god Baal in Old Testament times. When Alexander's armies swept from Greece across the Mediterranean basin, they captured it and it became a Greek and a thoroughly Hellenized city. Herod built a temple there in his time to honor Roman deities, the chief among them being the Roman emperor, of course. So Jesus takes this, as he always does, in a way that, that we can never hope to fully imitate, but we can hopefully appreciate as a teachable moment, Caesarea Philippi for centuries was a crossroads of polytheism, of paganism, 
of wrong answers to the everlasting question, who do you say that I am? They were the wrong apprehension about the living God. So he very deliberately parks there outside Caesarea Philippi at this crossroads of the pagan world and the Greek polytheistic culture and asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gets it right. You are the anointed one or the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, it's particularly interesting, given the Greek influences in Caesarea Philippi, to think about one thing that the Greeks got right almost all the way, but not entirely. The fulfillment came in Jesus Christ. So four centuries before the birth of Christ, Socrates, Plato in particular, Plato was as soul-haunted a pagan philosopher as you'll ever find. He was obsessed with the soul and has some wonderful and really fascinating writings about the soul. And his student Aristotle was much the same. Plato talked about several aspects of, of existence or being, what it, mean, what it means to be alive, what it means to be a human being in some ways. And three aspects of, of existence, of reality, of, of the world and the cosmos that are out there for Plato were what we now call the transcendentals, things that transcend any particular individual. They're sort of universal characteristics of, of being. And Plato called them the beautiful, the true, and the good. And they find their consummation in the living God. So the perfect, good, true, and beautiful Jesus Christ stands in pagan territory where Plato's teachings would have been heard over the course of three centuries or so as the embodiment of the perfect, good, and true, and beautiful, and poses this question that echoes down the centuries. Now, in the 20th century, one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, approached this question in the following way. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak, depending on her concept of God. And that's undeniably true. And I insist upon this, and I have said this many times, the basic troubles with the church today is her unworthy conception of God. It is vitally important that we should think soundly or correctly about God. Since he is the foundation of all of our religious beliefs, it follows that if we err in our ideas of God, we will go astray on everything else. If we cannot get this right, nothing else matters. In the same wonderful book by Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy, he goes on to make the following point. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century, and I would humbly submit the early years of the 21st century as well, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers, you and I, something amounting to a moral calamity. Tozer was a Jeremiah crying out that we appreciate the beauty and the truth and the goodness of the living God. So tonight we will wrestle with this question, who do you say that I am? As we have taken to doing uh, with Brent's inspiration on Wednesday nights, we're going to spend three minutes in table talk and fellowship. And I would like you to ponder and discuss the following two questions. How do you refer to God when you pray? And I want to challenge you, I want to push you on this. 
in the warp and woof of Christian life, sometimes those prayers can become rhythmic, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's, we're in a season of life where it's good. So it's in the routine of daily devotions that those prayers come forward. And I pray for all of us that we have periods of, of peace like that. But prayers often also come from cries of pain, of desperation, of loneliness. And I'd love to hear some table talk about how is it that we approach and name and cry out to God when there is no storm on the Sea of Galilee, but also when there is. And the second question, what name for God do you find the most comforting? And which do you find the most challenging? So have at it. You've got a few minutes to do your table talk. And I'll just listen. Okay, thank you. 
So who wants to shout out names for God in the midst of seasons of prayer? Any, any brave souls? Father. I heard Father. Beloved Father. It's a beautiful qualifier. Thank you. What else? Dad. Abba. In some ways, that beautiful Aramaic phrase, right? Others? How about names of God that comfort you? Like the comforter. The paraclete. Paracletes are a wonderful Greek phrase. It comes from, from two roots, para and kaleo. It means to call alongside. Isn't that great? The comforter is the one who comes alongside us when we cry out to him. Are there names for the Almighty that challenge you? That cause a little unrest? I'll let you contemplate that. There can be moments, certainly. Who do we say he is? At, at his heart, this is a fundamental question of our theology, plain and simple. And we have to get it right because that's the foundation upon which everything else is built. How we see the world, how we interact with one another. J.I. Packer, in a classic book called Knowing God, made the following point. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. From John 17, 3. What's the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. From Jeremiah 9.23. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? An important question. Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God in Hosea 6.6. 6. Once we all become aware that the main business that we are here to, know, to do, excuse me, is to know God, then most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination, lays hold of our allegiance, and this the Christian has in a way that no other has. For what higher or more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Amen. Packer has a gift with words to capture the truth. Now, more than merely knowing him, theology, orthodox Christian theology demands of us that we know him rightly. It's also held in orthodox theology that we can never know him this side of the veil completely. We know him in part, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 13, but we must know him Rightly, And that's the beauty of fellowship and Bible study is the opportunity to do precisely that. I also want to point out a different context for you and one in which we have no cultural parallel. So no matter what kind of a preamble I give here, we're not going to do it full justice. 
But Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? And for a Jew in that time in particular, but still very much today, I am was a phrase that was never to be uttered by the lips of man. And yet Jesus did it repeatedly. In that wonderful and powerful scene in Exodus when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks the obvious question, who should I say is sending me? We get this, this mysterious name for God. I am that I am. Ayah, Asher, Ayah in the Hebrew. I am that I am. So important that it was not to be uttered by the lips of man, and yet Jesus in this scene mentions it. And in John's Gospel, depending on how you count, somewhere between seven and ten times. And it's impossible to overstate how shattering that phrase would have been to the ears of any Jew. It it would have blown their minds in ways we, we have no cultural parallel to. And I just want to remind you of Jesus' I am claims from John's gospel to undergird this question that he's asking his disciples here just outside of Caesarea Philippi. So in John's gospel, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He says to his Jewish interlocutors at one point before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. That's a drumbeat of explicit claims to divinity that you would have simply not heard. It's, it's, it's impossible to fully wrap our heads around this. Now, the 20th century author C.S. Lewis Given this particular context of how shattering Jesus' claims were, made the following point in a well-known analogy. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That's classic Lewis. A man who says he's a poached egg, a nut. Or else he would be the devil of hell, which was the conclusion that his Jewish adversaries came to. You and I and all of us for all time and eternity must make our choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. Lewis makes a beautiful point there. God, who do we say that he is, is the one who exists in eternal fellowship, community, as three persons within a single Godhead. He's the eternal, self-existent, necessary creator God. He's perfect. He's simple or indivisible. He's spirit. He's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He is the one, in Paul's beautiful phrase in his Mars Hill speech and act, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. 
And for Christians, we take great joy in also pointing out that he is a redeemer God, a rescuer who stepped down from the throne of glory, wrapped himself in human flesh, suffered, was crucified, died, buried, and burst forth, as we'll celebrate in just a few weeks, to conquer death and redeem us from our sin. That's who he is. Now, upon that, we can then attempt to ask the question, who does he say that we are? But we don't want to get that out of order. We need to understand who he is first. So theology first in academic speak. Next comes what we call anthropology. Anthropos, the Greek word for man. Okay, writ large. So who does God say that we are? We are creatures. We are part of his creation. The contemporary theologian and author Gilbert Mylander has a wonderful book entitled Neither Beast Nor God. That's what we are. We're not merely animals. We're more than animals, but we're not God. And we often need that reminder, myself included. We are uniquely bearers of his image in all of creation. Only humanity bears the fingerprints of the Almighty in a way in which uh, we do. David reminds us in Psalm 8 when he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? You have made him little lower than angels. What are we that God is mindful of us? We are allegedly rational (laughs) by design. Not always. We know this. We're fallen creatures. We're rational, moral, free agents or actors. Some of the aspects of what that image of God might convey, more than simply being enfleshed spirits. We are, according to the biblical witness, this wonderful and mysterious fusion of body, soul, and spirit. So we are more than material. In the opening chapters of Genesis, Adam is formed from the dust of the earth. And by the way, Adam Adam was not originally in Hebrew a proper name. It, It meant the ground or the earth or the dust. It was a descriptive term. And God formed this first man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life or the spirit of life. And Genesis says, at that point, man became a living soul, bearing God's image. We are more than the material. I'm reminded of this by an episode I had the privilege of sharing in some years ago with a friend here in town, a friend from this community who had been suffering with poor health, and I was called to the hospital by his wife, ultimately on the day where he he would pass. And we sat there, the two of us, praying over him. He was unresponsive at the time, praying with him and holding his hand. And it was in many ways a a surreal experience. And I say this as one who had had buried a wife, who had buried a child, who had buried a father-in-law and a sister, all before I got to this point. But none of those circumstances were like this. I sat there holding a dear friend's hand. Part of the problem with modern technology is we almost know too much. So you see the beeps, right? And I have a background in in biomedicine. So so some of this actually meant something to me. And the heart rate got slower and slower, and the respiration got slower and slower. We just watched this slow fade of an image bearer 
holding his hand the whole time. But in, in the blink of an eye, at that moment when that last breath was taken, that last beat of the heart was taken, Bruce, in his own way, was gone. Still holding his hand. The material was still there. But the essential part of that person had flown away. Some bright morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. Right? An incredible privilege, awesome, and a reminder that we are more than merely material beings. We are also, and the biblical witness makes this painfully clear, sinners separated from our maker, our purpose, our fulfillment, our completer. While we bear the fingerprints of the Almighty, we're wrapped in the soil of our own sin. We're meant to be whole. We're designed to be whole and designed to be in communion with God. Remember in the early chapters of Genesis, God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening for fellowship with those that he made. And and happily, Revelation promises something similar, but not yet. We're broken. We're incomplete. And we can never be anything but broken and incomplete, absent a right relationship with our creator, God. And C.S. Lewis's rich phrase, we're bent. And Jesus comes to straighten us out, to make us whole. Now, last but not least, we have to ask ourselves, given this thumbnail sketch of theology and anthropology, so what? What difference does it make? Well, I hope it makes all the difference in the world. It should It must make all the difference in the world. It makes the difference between heaven and hell. Our answer to the question, who do you say that I am, determines our our eternal destiny. Can't be a more important question. See, a difference between eternal fellowship and eternal isolation. It's the difference between brokenness and wholeness. We are forever incomplete, absent our Lord's redeeming touch. And Lewis, in his unique way, once again, makes the following observation, which, by the way, ought to really scare you if you stop and think about this. In a little book called The Great Divorce, Lewis makes the following observation. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. Think about it. Makes all the difference in the world. So a right understanding of both who God is and who we are is absolutely critical to the Christian life and to Christian community. And I would submit ever so briefly that it's the foundation upon which culture is built. And if it's misapprehended, the culture is necessarily going to be broken. It's going to be characterized by conflict. It's the platform upon which politics is rightly construed. And it's interesting, again, Aristotle, three plus centuries before the birth of Christ, made the following observation about what is politics. Aristotle defined it thus, free people deliberating together about how we ought to order our lives together. And I say, absolutely. But the first step in ordering our lives is submission to our maker. It's the foundation of all relationships, of family, of friendships, of marriage. It's the foundation and the root and the purpose of our understanding of sex, both the act and the difference between male and female. 
And an improper theology or anthropology will almost inevitably, unless we get lucky, lead to a misunderstanding about what it means to be male, what it means to be female, what it means to be married, what it means to be human. And of course, a proper understanding of both theology and anthropology undergirds our approach to ethics. How are we going to order our lives together? How do we interact with other people? It makes all the difference in the world. A hundred years ago, uh, the British author Dorothy Sayers made the following observation. Sad but true, I'm afraid. The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. He was not boring by any stretch of the imagination. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Ouch. The Lion of Judah deserves better. He's not a house pet. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? So let me do this as we march a little bit closer to our close here. I, I want to spend an extended period of time sharing with you some reflections, not my own. I'll give credit where credit is due on the answer to this important question. Who do you say that I am? And I'd like to do so in the context of, of a prayer. So would you close your eyes with me? Would you join me? And I want you to reflect on this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through a song, a 20-year-old song by a father-son duo, simply called He Is. And we're going to start in Genesis and end in Revelation. And I pray, Lord God Almighty, may your word and your spirit refresh us, cleanse us, heart mind, soul, and spirit, and by your grace and through your strength, may we better apprehend the wonders of who you are. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, He's the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is Moses' voice. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. In Judges, he is the lawgiver. In Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he is the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and broken lives. In Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, he is wisdom's cry. In Ecclesiastes, he is the time and the season. 
In the Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he is the call from sin. In Daniel, he is the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he is the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he is pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores a lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is our fountain. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he's fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, he's the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he is our glorious treasure. In Philippians, he is the servant's heart. In Colossians, he's the Godhead Trinity. In Thessalonians, he is our coming king. In Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he's the everlasting covenant. In James, the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and Jude, he is the lover coming for his bride. In Revelation, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In gracious and almighty and merciful God, we cry out from the depths of our heart that your fingerprints would be upon us, that your grip upon our lives would be firm, that your spirit would go before us in decisions great and small, and that you, by your grace and through your power, would enable us to be truth bearers for your precious name's sake. We thank you for the sweet gift of fellowship, and we love you, and we give you all the praise and glory. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. As we close, let me remind you of a few things. Those of you that are moved by the Spirit to continue to give to and through Timberline Church will know that you have an opportunity to do so on your way out the door. And perhaps equally importantly, we have an opportunity for fellowship and food and treats by the back. Please continue to lift Brent up in prayer. He labors hard on behalf of the church, and life has caught up with him at the moment. So let's continue to cover him in prayer that the great physician would lay his hands upon Brent and have him back here for all of us next Wednesday night. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it.